Welcome to episode 14 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my animated co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, how does it feel to be in 2019? Well, Happy New Year, Winston. It's great. Uh, I think it's going to, you know, had a great year last year. I think this year is going to be even better. So how about you? I I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, 2018 was was pretty crazy, um, but I think I'm in in a good position to uh, hit 2019 uh, strong and I don't know accomplished a lot. I've got big ambitions, but uh, no no plan ever survives first contact with uh, reality. 2018 was definitely a transition year for you, and now you're now you're planted in. Uh... New soil. Let's see what, what I, grows. I wouldn't say planted. I, I'm still <laughs> floundering here while my garage is a, a wreck. So you were, uh, I know you went back to uh, East Coast for holidays with family. Uh, it, it was a bit of a protracted stay just because it, like, I've got friends to see, family to see, and just flying back for like just Christmas and not New Year's or one or the other just didn't seem quite right. So I, I stayed there for like two and a half weeks and, uh, uh, it was good. Uh, good to be away from the disaster garage and to sort of just have to focus on doing some editing and some planning and um, more just mental exercise than um, living in a disaster construction zone. I was kind of keeping up with you on Instagram as far as your progress on the in the in the new garage. Uh, actually, I like what you're building out there. The it's, it looks like combined shape oko enclosure and some some storage space underneath it. Yeah, it's probably going to end up being uh, machine storage, actually. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull the Nomad back from uh, Carbide 3D, because that's where it's currently residing. But at least the pocket NC will go underneath. Um, but I, I think I'm going to be able to beat you to having a quote-unquote vertical machining center. Oh, the, the, the multi-stack? Yeah. That's, that's actually... Um... On my project list, I'm uh, crammed to the gills in my uh, current spare bedroom right now with some, all the stuff I got going on here. So, yeah, and the uh, the extra Christmas present from Bantam surely wouldn't have helped. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I, actually, that thing's been that thing got to work out over the holidays. So, uh, yeah, I was kind of working on uh, two big things that I wanted to get done before January, and one was uh, I had some first article parts to get out for a client. The Delrin gear and aluminum drive shaft for the gear went through several iterations to get all the cam the way I wanted. And now I've got pretty reliable uh, cam on the, especially on the Delrin gears. There's some pretty tight tolerances on tight for me, right? <laughs> for what I'm used to uh, on a couple of features on that part. What are we talking like two to three thou? Uh, two thou, yeah. Two, uh, actually, it's probably one thou because it's plus zero 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 minus two thou. So. To me, that's really plus minus a thou, right? <laughs> On either. You're going to want to shoot for the middle. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and actually, uh, hitting it pretty consistently with the uh, with the Bantam machine um, took a little tweaking to kind of get there. Especially, like the, the big thing I learned was uh, I usually leave very small amount of stock to leave, and I'm doing adaptive very aggressively because uh, it's Delrin, right? <laughs> Basically, running the machine's rapids, but it tends to overshoot a little bit and remove a little too much material. Um, so when you do the finishing pass, you're actually a little, uh, out of spec. So I took a little tweaking on the, you know, stock to leave to make sure I hit right where I wanted to. Uh, that kind of surprises me because I'm assuming you're climb cutting and usually 
in in lower end machines like ours, uh, that should result in positive stock to leave at the end. Well, I think the issue is uh, like acceleration and on moving the axis that fast. It's probably you know just overshooting a little bit. Yeah, because it's actually the the sensitive feature is uh, it's an inner pocket. Initially, we're uh, a little too large a diameter, right? I was removing too much material from the inside wall. I mean, just barely. So uh, I kind of worked with the finish, like took away the spring pass, just did one pass and it's nailing it every time now. Yeah, so that was kind of, that was a, that was the first for me to really have to kind of keep something that, that close intolerance and that consistent uh, repeatedly. Because <laughs> that, that was the trick, right? Making sure every part comes out in that tolerance band. So I've done quite a few of those, um, you know, really just throw away parts to develop the particular cam strategy. And now I've, uh, did the, the shipping parts, uh, right at the end of the end of December, got those shipped out. Mm-hmm. How are you measuring the, uh, the tolerances on that? Like, are you, do you have a go, no go gauge or are you just miking everything? There's threads on one of the parts, aluminum parts. So I got a go, no gauge. That was the other, that was actually the other challenge. Um, I d- was doing a bunch of, uh, 832 thread milling trying to get um you know i hadn't done 832 before and uh did a bunch of the tests on the pocket and C. and initially all i had was a home depot screw and that was working fine like they were all good i kind of used john saunders uh thread milling spreadsheet to kind of come up with the the pdo um, but when i got my go no go gauge it actually uh the go was not it was too tight it wasn't fitting so I uh, went back and kind of looked at the cam and tried to figure out what was going on. And what, the issue was uh, I've been interpolating the hole instead of drilling, you know, the before threading. And it was coming in a little undersized. So it's probably a little bit of tool deflection on the 116th. So it wasn't really hitting. It should be like 0.136 inches in diameter. It was just a little under. Um, but that, get carry, that carries through all the way through the threads. I tried drilling. <laughs> yeah, that was the other. Uh, you know, I said, well, I'll just get a 136 drill and basically just switch to drilling is faster anyway, but um, I could not get that drill to run without stalling the spindle. Uh, it's a little bit over one eighth of an inch, right? So um, I've run uh, 2.5 millimeter drills and smaller uh, with no problem, but you know, I think one eighth an inch and bigger on, on any of these machines here, except maybe the Shape Oco, uh, there's just not enough torque on the drill to run that in metal. I mean, not, not enough torque on the spindle to run it, uh, you know, at a de- decent SFM and, uh, Aluminum. Yeah, the the shape buckle itself would be a different issue because that RPM is pretty darn high. Um, so yeah, I couldn't get drilling to work, so I had to kind of go back and work with the interpolation to make sure uh, I could get the right diameter with the end mill instead of a drill. So that's working well too. So now I get holes that are in spec according to the go no go gauge. Uh, re- definitely recommend those for anyone doing you know threading. It's uh, it's really the only way to get confidence that they're, especially if they're parts for somebody else that you're in spec, right, on the, on the threads. For all you know, they might be using, like, Home Depot hardware, so it might not matter. Um, I, don't, I don't know in this particular piece what the consequences would be, right, if the threads didn't hold. Kind of pushed me into areas I hadn't really focused on before, so I, I feel like I came out of that process with a better set of skills than I had going in. So that was kind of the whole point. How many, uh, how many pieces total was this job? Uh, so this was just the first article. It was uh, two complete two gears and two of the aluminum pieces. 
um, and send those to the customer for inspection. And depending on how that goes and how everything else comes together with this, you know, I think there's a lot of subcontractor work on this particular job. Um, you know, I don't know yet if I'll be one of them yet I'm trying to find, you know, trying to win some work here. Right. But, uh, if I do get it, I think, you know, at least on the gear part, it's hundreds. And then, uh, the gear, I, I mean, the aluminum part's a little trickier. It takes me like an hour to make that. I'm not sure that's really, I'm the right guy for that. <laughs> yeah. Is that something that, uh, you could just do on a, a regular lathe or it would be per it's really, a, yeah, it's ideally a lathe part. So, uh, I think the client's in that predicament where the quantity is not enough to interest a job shop, but it's probably more, you know, more than a little bit bigger than prototyping, but not quite enough to just or recoup the the machine setup costs in time. So, especially on the gears, like that's a uh, you know, once I get my fixture built, uh, I can crank those out pretty pretty good volume for a little machine, um, matched up at least with the, you know the volume they're they're looking for. It's a good it's a good niche product for what I have going here. Like the aluminum piece definitely is not. <laughs> so yeah, it's too big an investment of time to to crank out you know. I think it's like two gears for every shaft, so it's not quite that bad. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm thinking uh, I'm definitely comfortable doing the gears. I'm still thinking on the shaft side. Uh, what else? Oh, so the other big thing I wanted to get done before the end of the year <laughs> was the Shapoko enclosure, which is like now at 90, 95% complete. Uh, I'm catching up. You got you to gotta hurry up, man. Yeah, I went, into, I went into the holiday with it basically being just the the eighty twenty shell and no panels, um, I posted a, a update a couple of weeks ago with the, I had uh, preliminary panels. That, you know, I, I went with that cheap. Uh, I can't remember. It's hardboard, right? So it's like ten dollars for an eight by four panel. It's white on one side and kind of natural on the other side. So oh, like prime sheathing or, or just something really cheap like that. It's the same stuff they build like the pegboard out of, like for your garage. To hang the J hooks, yeah. But this this had a finished side, so it was kind of nice. Um, super cheap stuff. It's eighth inch. It's perfect for paneling, uh, for opaque paneling, right? Uh, you just reminded me. In hindsight, I shouldn't have bothered painting my enclosure. I should have just bought whiteboard material and pasted that on the inside, because then I could like write notes too. Like one of the things with the, so I, I put like the white side out on the sides, you know, because it's kind of uh, cosmetic. You know, that's the visible sides on the, because the, the back of the enclosure sits against the wall, so you can't really see it. So, um, this, the roof and the back panel, I flipped around so the white side's facing in to help with lighting and video, you know, get some, some light diffusion in there. Cause basically the other side's almost black. It's like a dark Brown. It's going to not really reflect much light. Yeah. So I went to home Depot, got that stuff cut on their big saw because it won't fit in my car, right? Eight by four. I don't have a truck. <laughs> <laughs> I have a two seater. And, uh, so I basically, if I get it cut to the sizes I needed for the panels, um, and like one eight by four gave me everything I needed the back and the side actually, I, and then I had to go second panel to get the roof. It's like $20 investment, right? Not too bad. But as they say at Home Depot, they don't do precision cuts <laughs> and they were all like, uh, like two millimeters too short. So uh, I was oh. leaving gap. Yeah. So, but it was good. Cause it kind of, I had a feeling I was probably didn't measure, you know, I, I had a feeling the first round was going to be wrong there. I was actually going to buy the, that paneling material just to do templates to make sure, um, when I ordered the much more expensive, uh, polycarbonate windows that there would be, they would fit right. I would 
pre-fit with this stuff and then just order it that size. Um, but I actually like, end up liking the panel stuff enough to, to use it any place I wasn't really going to put windows. Um, so anyway, I had to go back. Yeah. I had to go back and get them cut a second or a second set of panels and those were perfect. So those are in the machine now. Uh, I've got everything done except the, the polycarbonate on the door. And you live a, a dangerous life if you ask them to cut something exactly to, to what you need. I would have had them cut it just slightly oversized. Yeah, I was so the I was up against the uh, what would fit in my car. <laughs> so like it was right at yeah. Although I mean millimeter here and there wouldn't have made wouldn't have made a difference. Um, but yeah, I probably should have gone a little bigger uh, at the point at the time. I didn't really have any way to cut it once I got it home, even to trim a piece off. So I ended up uh, when I bought the second panel, I picked up one of those uh, Roby. I guess jigsaw. Yeah. Oh, jigsaw, like the little battery jigsaw. I think it's a jigsaw. Yeah. So that worked great for just trimming off. Um, yeah. So this time I basically had them cut it in thirds and I, I did the final trim here and that worked pretty good. I'll probably, uh, I'm thinking, you know, on the windows, I might go, I'm trying to decide if I want to like just bring home a panel and cut it myself. I think I'd rather just get it cut to size, but shipping is so expensive on something that, that dimension. Yeah. It is. It's it's nice to live near a bunch of plastic suppliers and also McMaster Car. Yeah, actually, Home Depot has what I'm looking for, um, but again, it's like they sell it the the minimum size that would be big enough to cut my window is too big to fit in the car <laughs> before it's cut. Right, <laughs> so I either have to cut it in the parking lot or you know, figure out some way to get it home. Right. Yeah, um, I I size my enclosures specifically so that I could find like a two by two or a 24 by 30 inch panel that would fit exactly uh, to what I need. So I, I worked around those constraints. Yeah. That was a lesson learned for me is uh, go with standards, <laughs> standard dimensions, right? Mine's the kind of oddball uh, on all the sides, but uh, it's really big. Like I went, I, just like you, I kind of went with oversize. Um, I'm really happy with that. I think it's going to be really good when I get the lighting in there. Um, Cause some might like the, the smaller enclosures, the lighting is just a little too close to the metalwork, you know, to the, it basically I get a lot of glare and reflection off the, you know, the shiny parts of the machine. It kind of affect the video. Sometimes this, this will let me kind of have a little more diffuse light inside. Oh, trust me. I am all too uh, aware of uh, lighting issues and CNC. The other thing that's uh, on my plans for 20, well, I guess that was kind of what I did on the holidays. Um, uh, I got my one big carryover task, which is get my YouTube channel up. So that's uh that's on my 2019 must-do list. I was gonna say I haven't seen like any any Instagram post about a, a URL. Otherwise, I would have been all over it. Yeah, I actually have the channel. I just don't have any content on it. I've had it for like six months. Um, the, you know, I kind of put that on the back burner when we started the podcast because I was I was looking at kind of doing both around the same time, and you know, I had basically X amount of time to commit and chose to invest that in the podcast, right? <laughs> and and now you're taking on extra jobs so who knows when you'll ever make your first video yeah well i've, I've got uh some ideas there you know i think i'm uh hinted at what i plan on doing it'll be it's not going to be a winston moy type <laughs> youtube <laughs> channel it's gonna be very light on narration and very uh you know pretty much like a just machining action right and uh occasionally i'll do some you know, more extended projects but i, I want to kind of do um certain interesting things I might be doing on the machining side and uh, kind of a techniques, not tutorials, but just, Hey, here's something I tried and it worked really well, you know, like sharing that kind of stuff. Okay. I'll hold you to it. 
I think I've been saying that for like a year. Yeah. <laughs> we're one quarter away from release. First quarter of 2019. <laughs> See what else? Yeah. So I have uh, potentially you know, more of this same commercial work. And I have uh, heard from a gentleman. I guess he's a, a member of uh, the watch. Uh, Houdinki, right? The Houdinki site. So a watchmaker that... Uh, Interested to see if the Pocket NC can make some watch movement parts, which I'm pretty sure the answer is going to be no because of the tolerances on those. But uh, yeah, I was going to say that's you're 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 going to want something that'll measure in tenths. So, yes, uh, exactly. Um, we're going to give it a try on on one particular part just to see how you know, how close we can get with the you know hobby slash prosumer machine. Um, but it's more of an experiment, really. It's a cool one, though. Yeah, I'm, I'll do it in stainless. I think the final part, they need it in no two tool steel, uh, if I remember what he said correctly. So I, I don't think I'll try that here. Uh, are you going to have to procure any extra tooling to do that? Like, how small are we talking? No, I have actually have tooling that small for stainless because uh, I had it left over from some earlier commercial work that I did. Uh, end up not getting run. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll, it'll, it'll actually work for this pinion gear. And he actually... the. The guy uh, simplified the model. There was a couple of features I wouldn't have been able to make. Um, that he said, oh, they weren't really necessary. So now I have a pretty simple model, pretty simple pinion here to work with. It's just small. Uh, so that's that'll be probably next week. Something I'll start next week. And then what else I got going on? Uh, yeah, windows for the enclosure. Because <laughs> I, I have a bunch of like Shapeoko stuff that's just kind of piling up that I can't run until I get this thing sealed up, right? I, I tried to do, uh, tried to run it in the house. It's just a disaster. So as far as mess. Um, so I'm really looking forward to getting it sealed up and, and start getting through that list of things that don't fit on any of my other machines anyway, uh, or that can take advantage of the, you know, the more powerful spindle. Uh, do you have any contingency plan? Should your wife not be thrilled with the uh, decibel level of the shape Oko? Uh, I think my only option is to go, you know, Chinese water-cooled spindle or something like that, right? Those are pretty quiet. Yeah, it, it tends to just be the cutting noise, though, more than the the router itself. Because, like, the Nomad can make a pretty big racket, and with no load, it's actually pretty quiet. So uh, it's, it's just the harmonics and the vibrations and the chatter of actually cutting through a large quantity of material that's, that's your issue. Yeah, yeah, and we'll see. Um, I mean, I cannot. This room can be pretty well isolated from the parts of the house that she tends to spend time in. But uh, yeah, we'll just we'll have to see. Um, I think. I mean, even with the machine, most I'll probably be doing uh, fairly small. You know, working with fairly small tools, so not a lot of hogging. It'll just be bigger panel work, right? So yeah, um, if you stick like eighth inch or below, you should be pretty okay. Yeah, that's actually where I'm happy to work. I think the biggest I'll probably use on it for most stuff is that 316th uh, Lakeshore Carbide TAS cutter because that works so well on the, on the aluminum job I did earlier. Um, that's really the only machine I have here that's run that successfully. So uh, I'll definitely use that one again. My big immediate plan is you know get the Shapeoko in the in the mix and uh, work through the project list that I've got back in my backlog for the shape for that machine and then. Uh, hopefully YouTube channel sometime soon. And uh, yeah, I've got some other interesting projects on the Pocket and C and other mill, like probably the next month or so. Uh, some of it's mostly for me. You want to talk about the finishing tests? Yeah, so that's been an area of interest to me, um, just because uh, 
last year I was going to make a video um, from the road trip of making the aluminum star at your house. Uh, but uh, I remember we had an issue where we didn't leave enough stock to leave and we had some of the, the grooves from the pocketing toolpath still show up in the star after finishing. Uh, but there was also this issue of like just, it, it looked like uh, like if you took a magnifying glass to sw like a sweater and you saw like the fuzz on the surface, that's sort of what we were seeing on the surface of the star. And I don't know if it was our step over was wrong or like uh, you shouldn't climb or conventional one way or the other going uphill or downhill on one of these parts. Um, but I just, I was not thrilled with the surface finish we were getting. And so that's why I've sort of been uh, postponing the video from that project. Uh, and I, I want to go into the office tomorrow and just try some more things. Uh, but you've actually made some significant progress in achieving good surface finishes. So uh, what have you learned? Yeah, um, several things. So I actually ran into a similar issue that you got you ran into on the star like it looks like that fuzz uh, as far as i can tell it's i think it's it's basically chip welding chip recutting going on which is just destroys the finish <laughs> so um yeah because I, I did testing on uh the shape of i'm sorry on the um, pocket and c and on the other mill uh, pretty much the same test parameters the cutter was different because i only had one like I, I didn't have two of the same cutter the ball and mill so i ended up picking, you know, different cutters, diameters. Um, that was really the only variable. Actually, the in the part geometry was a little different, but the pocket and C with its horizontal orientation, basically there was no chip accumulation. It was a concave feature, right? So chips were just falling away because that concavity was uh, horizontal. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty convenient. Yeah, and then on the, on the Bantam machine, you know, it basically became a cup, right? And it was collecting chips. Um, and I could definitely see the difference in the finish. And I was looking at it with, uh, I didn't, I didn't pull out the microscope, but I was just, I had the macro lens on the iPhone, which is, I don't know, it's probably 10 power or uh, it's probably eight power. Um, and I could see like, I could see chips sticking on the, on the Bantam sample. Um, it has nothing to do with the machine, right? It's just the orientation of the part and poor chip evacuation. So I ran it a second time, um, on the Bantam tool with the little chip fan. I didn't have it on the first time the little chip evacuation fan or we got bit fan, right? So that made a big difference. That kind of, I uh, didn't see that fuzz the second time. Um, I had other issues or other findings, I guess, uh, related to the, the finishing strategy. Um, so the biggest thing I found, uh, I talked to Marvin, right? Uh, Marvgro on Instagram. And he, he was saying that he likes to use, he likes to match step over and feed per tooth, right? So he likes to use the same value for both. I was using, I've always used, my rule of thumb's always kind of been 10% of tool diameter for on ball and mills. Good, good step over for finishing. Yeah, I've, I've gone smaller without trying to specifically go after surface finish, but 10% about right for what I usually do. Yeah, 10% will give you, you know, reasonable runtime, right? That's, um, but I was not getting the finish. Like, I've, I've not been upset with those finishes, but it's a pretty matte finish. I, I typically finish with uh, more spiral, and that gives me, 10% step over gives me kind of a uniform matte finish, which is not bad, but I can feel the, I can feel a little bit of texture in the surface. Um, I wanted to see if I could get closer to a mirror finish. I, I wasn't expecting a mirror finish off the machine like he gets on this Kearns, but... Um, I wanted at least a surface that would polish up pretty easily after, you know, post-machining. Because uh, I've tried to polish the uh, 
the 10% step over finishes when I was doing my spinners and it's a lot of work to get that, uh, to be a, a, a mirror finish. It's, you know, it's 20 minutes of, uh, polishing with my hand. I don't have a, I don't have a buffing wheel here. So I was kind of just, I polished with hand, uh, aluminum cream and, and microfiber cloth. Right. Um, but that surface was pretty, pretty tough place to start to get a good finish. Uh, so that's kind of what I was, that was the strategy or that was the, uh, goal for this particular exercise was trying to find a better finish to start with for pot for post machine polishing, like very light polishing, right? Cause I hate doing that hand stuff. Um, yeah. So what I found, you know, go much smaller step overs than 10%. Uh, it, it was worth it. There's definitely diminishing returns as you get really insane. Uh, you know, the runtime goes up and the finish quality is really no better. Uh, I haven't found kind of the sweet spot yet. Uh, I tested it, uh, a really small one. I started with a 0.016 step over with a two millimeter ball in and took about like an hour and a half to run uh, like 1.1 inch diameter circle. Uh, that was you know, the feature size, right? For that concavity, concavity on the other mill at 26K RPM. Um, that was the best finish I got off the other mill. Actually, then I, I did a second test at just a, 0.05 millimeter step over, which cut the that machine to nine minutes, which is much better, <laughs> right? Um, got almost the same results, or really, I couldn't really tell the difference between that and the really small step over. Um, and that ran, I ran the the 0.05, basically matched my feed per tooth at the systems or at the other mills. I'm sorry, I keep saying the other mill, the Bantam uh, Bantam machines. Um, max feed rate, 2,600 millimeters per minute. So that was, was basically max out on the spindle, max out on feed rate, and set the, the step over to kind of match those parameters and got a pretty, pretty usable, definitely a better finish that I've gotten at 10%. Um, but the same thing, same, pretty much same parameters running on the pocket and C gave me a much better finish. So I actually, that polished up to a mirror in like 10 seconds of polishing with my microfiber cloth the uh, finish coming off the Bantam never, it was still really cloudy, even after, you know, a minute of trying to polish it out. It wasn't, it wasn't going to get any better without some lapping or something or more aggressive polishing compounds. So it was kind of interesting. Uh, I think I've, I'm good with the parameters I got on the band. I'm sorry, on the pocketancy. Like I, that's a recipe I'll use again. I think the Bantam needs more, I need to do some more exploring different tools and maybe the same tool I use on the pocket and C maybe that makes a difference. That was a, the pocket and C got the Datron two millimeter ball. And then I put a, a generic, uh, uh, one eighth ball on the other mill. Cause I wanted to be able to use the chip fan and it only fits on one eight shank tooling. Uh, you don't have anything that, uh, goes on the collet. Is that an ER 11 or an ER eight? It's an ER 11. No, it goes, Oh, well, I would worry about something like balance is the other thing. I don't know if using that fan is causing the issue. So, um, at 26,000 RPM, that might be enough imbalance that it actually shows up on something like this finishing exercise. So I want to try it both ways. I, I really just need some way to kind of keep the pocket clean while it's running the finishing pass. Um, yeah. I'm thinking for the nomad, I might just, uh, like tape down the vacuum hose, like right in front of the part, uh, just so you have constant airflow over that. But you've got the uh, benefit of having a little port for routing air through it, don't you? 
Yep, <laughs> exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, the old machine didn't, but this one has a, has a way for me to route air in there. So um, I'm going to kind of do the Chris Lee solution like you did on the Nomad. Maybe get a little uh, solid pipe in there that's uh, uh, kind of mounted to the spindle housing and just blow some. I don't need a lot of pressure, probably just an aquarium pump because uh, these chips, you know, at this step over, the chips are not much more than dust. So it's easy to blow them out. So I might give that a try. I think uh, the tooling might be the, the biggest factor uh, that made a difference. I'm, and at this point, I'm not really sure. So I mean, uh, it's kind of unfair to pit anything generic against a Daytron tool. Yeah, the other thing is that that tool, the Daytron tool, uh, is fairly new. I really don't know the the history of my uh, one eighth inch ball. It's actually the carbide. <laughs> so that's not give you an idea how long I had that. It came with my. I think I bought that when I bought my Nomad and. Uh, I, so that's like years old. Yeah, and I don't use it that often. I don't use the one eight ball, but I know I've used it, um, you know, enough that it may not, it may be too old to or too worn to really be good for surface finishing. Um, so anyway, yeah, I need more consistent testing methodology, right? To, to uh, I saw enough, you know, discrepancy between the two machines that it's worth uh, focusing on the methodology, make sure I'm comparing apples to apples. So I'll retest again. Um, it was good. It was interesting data. The big thing, I think the biggest influence was step over, uh, go with much smaller step over where it still has, you know, kind of, you have to trade off between that and the, the runtime of the op, right? So depending on what kind of surface finisher you're looking forward to, but I can t definitely tell you the pocket and see, you know, even with the, the 10K spindle, which I thought would be an issue because um, the surface, the SFM is so low with the small ball in mill that I didn't think that was going to be the one that had the, the good finish uh, versus the faster spindle on the Bantam, but it surprised me. So I got a really good finish off the pocket and see, I'll share that with you. That should actually work on the Nomad too, because they're basically the same spindle limit. You, know, you can do 10K on the, yeah, you just have to deal with chip evacuation. Um, I do climb only for that. That's the other thing. I don't know if I would do any, any uh, conventional for finishing on aluminum. Yeah, so I'll uh, I'll share that with you. I think uh, I'm going to keep tuning the step over, probably keep making it larger until I see noticeable degradation, and then call that the limit, right? And then now I'm really just trying to optimize the runtime. Um, I don't want to be doing cutting smaller for no good effect and wasting all that time and tool wear. Yeah, I'm surprised. The uh, what's your your chip load is the equivalent of what like two thou or something or. It's, uh, I got to do the math here. Hang on a sec. So uh, the, the smallest chip load I ran was 0 0.16 millimeter, which was uh, uh, 0.000699 inches. And that was actually, that was, um, Marvin and I were, we were kind of looking at the stepper motor resolution on the machine and um, kind of came up with that base. That's kind of the limit of what the stepper motor can, can resolve. I matched the, you know, basically match the step over to that feed per tooth. It was ridiculous. You know, that's not really a usable value. It gave me a good result, not great result, but took forever to run. Um, and I don't think the machine's getting anywhere near that accuracy. So, uh, yeah, definitely like 0.05 is kind of the minimum step over I would run. I think I can run much bigger. You know, it, I think the happy spot is going to be somewhere between 5% and 10% of tool diameter. Um, you know, it gives you reasonable run times and, and, good finish and you just tune within that band for how much effort you want to put into that or how much effort you want to save on the, any post machining processing, right? 
Um, yeah, I'm mostly just glad to hear that uh, SFM doesn't have a huge effect on. Uh, it should. <laughs> That's the thing, especially with bottom mill, right? Because it's cutting with that. Um, and I'm not using tool tilt on the. I didn't use anything like that on the. Well, I take that back. So the geometry of my feature was such that I kind of had. I mean, it was it was designed. That test was designed that way, right? So it's a a conca you know, concavity that I'm starting in the center and, and walking up the walls, right, with the ball end mill. So other yeah, than so the, at the bottom of the bowl, you're you're engaging a different part of the end mill. Yeah, at the bottom of the bowl, it's the cutting with the the very tip, and it, that's the worst part of the finish on both tests. Um, but once it starts walking up the walls, right, it's cutting with the side of the cutter, and you see a noticeable improvement once it gets off the floor uh, with the the finish quality on both machines. Um, so that was that's uh, that's where I thought you know higher SFM on the something like the twenty six k RPM phantom spindle would minimize that floor even at the center. I mean, it, at the exact center of the tool, it's zero SFM, right? But yeah, you know, at higher RPM, you don't have to get very far off the nose before you start getting decent SFM. At ten k, you're not getting much SFM till you're probably pretty pretty well out on the radius. But yeah, it was kind of the results were counterintuitive, so. I think uh, the slower spindle, but potentially more rigid machine, did a better job. You said with uh, any sort of cool interlubrication, it actually was detrimental. So I try, yeah. What I what I tried, um, I put a little bit of WD forty on the on the other mill part, you know, just like a drop or two in the cup, right, <laughs> the concavity, before I started the finishing pass. Because um, you know that, that's supposed to help with aluminum. It was really more just to help it be a little better finish but it ends up uh again because of chip evacuation there it was actually just gluing the chips the chips are so light right with that step over they were just kind of they were sticking like the wd-40 made them stick to the even worse right to the sides of the part they were staying in there in the uh, feature and getting recut more than with when i left it dry this is you know there's enough wind uh, i guess or inertia or whatever from the cutting tool to kind of blow those chips somewhat not all of them but some of them out um, but with the any kind of lubrication there they were really sticking so i think that was normally wd-40 would help or some sort of cutting like actually marvin suggested i try a drop of cutting oil um, if i can get the chip evacuation going then i think that lubricant would definitely help yeah if only you had a like compressed air or like a mist coolant yeah, actually, what I didn't do is combine. Yeah, when I put the bit fan in there, I didn't use mainly because I forgot. I didn't put the I didn't put lubrication on that one. So uh, I'll try combining those two next time. See if that helps. Um, but yeah, I'll probably uh, Monday or Tuesday I'll rerun that just on the Bantam with the exact same tooling I used on the Pocket and C and repost those results. I posted what I what I've got so far today. I was really surprised at how easily that. At least the stuff coming off the pocket and C polished to pretty close to a mirror finish. It was easy. I, and I've struggled with that in the past. So that was, I, I don't know why I never thought to go below 10%. I always thought that was kind of a, a waste of time once you went below that step over. Yeah. I, I personally would have been worried about a, like tool wear just from hearing like, don't go below like five tenths. Yeah. For fi I think for finishing, yeah, you're really, you're almost burnishing anyway. That's kind of almost the, maybe the intent on these small tools at higher RPM. Um, but yeah, I'm sure it's taking, it's impacting, it'll impact the tool life on those ball end mills for sure. 
Um, oh, one other thing that was helpful, and I'll post a link in the show notes. Um, Marvin shared, a, there's actually a calculator out on the internet that you can use to either optimize the step over. Basically, if you, if you know your uh, tool diameter and the step over you want to use, it'll tell you what the theoretical uh, surface finish is going to be for that. You know, mathematically, right? Assuming your yeah, machine was I mean, perfect. We're not going to get that on our <laughs> machines. Yeah. Well, I mean, it works at any, like any step over, even, yeah, even rough ones, right? It'll tell you if you're going to, it'll tell you the best you could get at that setting, I guess is, is what I was getting at. So that was kind of useful. And that's really dependent on the tool, right? So tool diameter is probably the bigger factor there. Crazy idea here. Do you think you could mount the uh, Bantam Tools machine, like just sideways on a wall? And just use it as a horizontal mill. So in their, oh, where did I see? I think it was in their blog when they first came out with the first generation of the machine, the one I originally had. They said it's designed so you can actually set it on its face, which is the front, like it's flat on the front. Every every other side has either steppers motor sticking out of it or like the e, e stop switch, um, but it's actually designed to you can roll it forward and sit it on the front face. So that the chips fall. Actually, that's a really good idea. I had forgotten about that. Um, yeah, then it's basically a horizontal machine, and they suggest it for like chip evacuation. I can't remember what context they like. They only talked about it once. It's hey, this is a neat thing you can do with it, um, and I've never seen them demonstrate it or talk about it again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, in theory, it should work. I, I think you should try that. Do an apples to apples comparison. Yeah, I won't be able to get good video out of that because it's the main window. Well, actually, no, the back. There's a window in the back. It might work. Um, yeah, I'll give it a try. That's actually that's a pretty good idea. My audio is probably horrible there because I turned away to look at the other mail. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's usable. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I'll t- actually, I'll, I think I'll ask the Bantam about if that's still a safe thing to do. I know it was on the. Er- First machine, I, and I, the architecture is basically the same, and the case design is the same, enclosure design. And, so. and those axes are so light that I can't imagine it'd be too much different, yeah. like load wise. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I am moving at the limits of the machine, so that actually would be interesting to see. I could slow it down at the you know expense of some extra machining time. Um, yeah, but like another data point, like you're doing twenty eight thousand RPM, you're doing ten thousand RPM. Picking something in the middle, like 20,000 RPM and feeding a little slower wouldn't hurt just as an extra data point. Yeah, I actually, I ran the pocket and see at two thirds of max feed rate because that's, you know, I was kind of limited by the spindle RPM there. So a thousand, thousand millimeters per minute kind of gives me the same feed per tooth as I was using on the other mill at much higher RPM. So I, yeah, it's the other thing that could have been uh, some of the, some of the, Imperfections could have been just running the machine at basically cutting it at its uh, rapid rate. <laughs> That's probably you know, pretty challenging for the machine. Um, or yeah, even the, maybe my RPM was a little too high. I, I could try come. I, actually, I'm, I can't run it ten ten k is too low on that machine. But yeah, I'll maybe try something in the middle, just uh, something a little closer to the speed I was running on the pocket and C, and see if it gets closer to the pocket and C results. Yeah, I, you know, I would have lost a bet if I, if someone had bet me at the beginning of this, I would have thought the other mill was going to uh, blow the pocket and see out of the water just because of the surface SFM on the high RPM spindle. But um, I always thought that was like the main factor. But I'm, I'm, 
having to throw out my conventional wisdom and go figure out what's going on here. It, it still might, though. Yeah, yeah. It's just it was too many variables uh, that weren't quite the same. It wasn't, you know, like I said, in my testing methodology it was this was this quick and dirty curiosity thing originally, <laughs> but now I kind of now I care, right? Now I'm starting to the results didn't come out the way I wanted, which is actually kind of a good thing. So now I want to go dig into it and get a little more uh, methodical about my test methodology and uh, see where we get, see where we end up. You'll be in a good shape for the. Uh... Autodesk cam challenge, assuming it has anything to do with surface finish. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I'm going to enter the challenge yet. So I, I don't know where it is exactly. So I got to see maybe my my gut instinct is I probably won't have time for February. Um, it's gonna, that's when I think that's when it goes live, right? February. Uh, the 6th, I think. Yeah, yeah. So unfortunately, that timing is bad for me. But um, we'll see if it's something I, if I have it like a epiphany about an idea. <laughs> Um, I might do it, but well, I, if yeah. not, I'll just steal your recipes and, uh, go for the win. Yeah. It's tough, man. There's so many, like I, I did it for the first time last year and there are so many good entries now. Um, cause I remember when it first started, I mean, they were always good, but there weren't a lot of entries, right? Now the word's kind of getting out and there's quite a bit of competition. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially from, from guys with, uh, pr like industrial machines, it's yeah. getting harder to compete. Like you really have to be super creative to, to get a leg up on them. Yeah, yeah, and if this one's about surface finish, it's gonna be, <laughs> it's gonna be. Uh, they'll definitely have an advantage, I think. But yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. You know, whether I enter or not, I love, I love uh, looking at the results of that and the entries. So I'm kind of excited about that. Um, I was gonna. Oh yeah, so your, so your star. Um, yeah, I'll give you what what I found out and maybe I, some places to start with some tweaking on your existing cam and see where where that comes out. That was weird. That was a weird uh, imperfection. I remember seeing it. It happened here, and then it happened again. I think when you ran it, once you were in California, and it, it threw me off because I was like, "What's wrong? Like, are like are my backlash nuts like out of whack or something?" Or I, I was like looking all over the place for uh, what might cause it. And I even went so far as to play with the parallel toolpath options. There's one for like only climb, only conventional, uh, only going uphill or downhill. And like I, I played with all those variables, and I was still getting it. So um, I'll try it with that smaller step over, uh, maybe tomorrow or later this week. Yeah, I think. I mean, other than the using parallel, you were pretty much running my finishing recipe. Um, it was your recipe because uh, you did my cam. Well, that's right. Yeah, I think. But like I said, normally I would I would go after that with like a more spiral. Right, that's just my go-to finishing pass because I, I just like the way it works without lifting the tool. You know, um, doesn't work for everything, but it works pretty good on, especially a part like that star, that's kind of a 3D part. Um, but, but parallel is supposed to work really good too. I just don't, I don't use parallel very often. So I'm probably, I mean, that could be the difference, right? That could be weighted in maybe parallel, just cuts a little differently than I was expecting. Potentially, but I don't think, like, it should still work. Like the tool paths, they, they should halt all have like the same mechanics of cutting. Yeah. They should leave the same surface finish. Yep. Yeah, and I'll probably do some more testing beyond just the more spiral. Like I'll just, I'll continue my finishing ser test series with the parallel and horizontal, which is another one I don't use very often. I, I actually, I might just turn this into, there's a whole bunch of finishing strategies that I don't use very often. They're in Fusion. Um, I pretty much use this more spiral, pencil, and uh, you know, just the contour, right? So. I'm gonna probably start playing around with some of the other ones. I, I used radial on the 
on one feature on the uh, uh, spinners, right? Because I wanted that kind of starburst look. Um, use it more for aesthetics than for any other reason. But um, there's a whole bunch of you know uh, finishing, including the multi-axis stuff that uh, I need to play around with more. See how much that how much variation there is, and kind of which is the right one for particular feature or geometry. A lot of it's subjective, but I mean that's that's part of the fun of doing all your tool paths yourself. Yeah, exactly. Especially, you know, in this case, I was, it helped to have a specific goal. You know, I wanted, I wanted a mirror finish <laughs> right off the machine, which I know I'm not going to get. Um, but then, you know, if not off the machine, how easily could I get it with minimal post-processing? So like I said, I, I, I got one good result I'm happy with. i keep trying to see if I can find that same sweet spot on the other machines here. Uh, combination of machine and tooling and see where we, see where we end up. So what else you got going on this week? Uh, well, this week, it's going to be my first week in the office again uh, since 2018. So I've got a, a whole queue of just uh, different things I want to try. Um, the aluminum finishing strategy being one of them. Uh, another one is uh, to do a video about slotting. Um, I know I've touched on it before, but instead of doing a 2D contour for uh, just cutting out parts, um, if you do an adaptive clearing in, in a offset toolpath as a containment boundary, uh, you can just adaptively slot through uh, thicker material, uh, which in aluminum tends to be problematic because usually if you're just doing a 2D contour, you've got no room for chip evacuation. Uh, most people don't have air or they're not following closely with a vacuum. So it the cuts, they all sound pretty bad and gritty and... Um, it has an effect on surface finish, but more importantly, uh, with a low power spindle like the Nomad has, like if if you run into like a really like deep trough of chips, like you can stall the spindle, which will ruin your day pretty quick. Um, so I want to put out a quick video about just different techniques to get through thicker plates, like thicker than one times the diameter of your end mill, um, but also uh, come up with some some different feed and speeds guidelines because um, right now like like anytime someone asks like what feeds and speeds should i use I, i'll just point them to that uh that chart that carbide 3d has like with the nomad they've got a list of materials and what speed you should go out with an eighth inch end mill or with the shape oak or the quarter inch uh, but that chart is really static like it is if you're using this material you use this feed rate this depth of cut this rpm and with different cuts, like contour is going to be different than an adaptive is going to be different than a pocket. There is no one size fits all like speed. And uh, if we can come up with a better idea of uh, how to, I don't know, just uh, maximize what the machine can do. Like if you're doing a pocket with a small step over, uh, we can increase your feed rates. If we can like plug that back into Carbide Create, which I don't want to promise anyone that will do, but if we can be a little more flexible with our application of feeds and speeds, um, I think it'll be useful and beneficial for people. Um, so that's that's something I'm just working on in the on the back burner, sort of, uh, just as I go through like different materials: linoleum, aluminum, plastics, acrylic, wood. Um, just sort of push the machine a little bit and see where where these feed rate deviations are uh like in pocketing go a little faster um 
I don't know. I'm just sort of playing around and, and figuring out what these machines can do in a stock con- uh, configuration. Yeah, I've always um, I've always taken those uh, the carbide 3D kind of materials and speeds and feeds chart to be. Uh, it doesn't specify, but I always assume they're talking about slotting, right? Kind of full engagement um, for their tests. So I've always adjust use that as kind of my baseline and kind of guess. You know, if I'm moving it doing adaptive, I can cut a little deeper, it's a shallower cut, right? Then maybe run a little faster. And that's been pretty good. But yeah, I would love to have like tested data <laughs> for other cam strategies other than probably full depth or full engagement slotting. Um, so one of the things I want to do is actually, um, you, you've probably, if you've watched any of the Carbide 3D videos, sort of seen that I'm um, sort of positioning like the, the video sort of like a techniques or a material guide, like this is how you machine linoleum. Here's some feeds and speeds that I used. Um, I would like to sort of just document and put that information out there um, of like, hey, this is what I used and this is like, this will give you a successful result. Um, Because for people who are researching this stuff, if you go on like the the Shapeoka wiki, there's some pretty gnarly looking charts and like, people like will just try and be like, hey, I tried this feed and speed and like it worked or it didn't work. It's it's hard from a text-based resource to to get a feel good of whether or not you should try it or not. Um, so if I can show like certain cutting parameters, it'll work smoothly, great. Um, I just want to sort of reduce people's anxieties about approaching certain materials like aluminum and also just like visual evidence of like, hey, this is it actually working. Yeah, and I'm good with the like, uh, you know, vendor published numbers being fairly conservative. Leave some room for the the aggressive user to you know push them a little bit from there. And also just like wear or like work holding. Like there there are certain variables you can't always account for, so you do have to back off a little. So one of the things I like about uh, Bantam Tools website, so they actually public they have a materials focused. Uh, fees and speeds it's more of a library than a table like each material like like if you go look up aluminum they'll have um description of aluminum and you know some some information about machining aluminum and what to look out for then they um at the end of the each of these materials uh sections they have uh like regular like what i call conservative speeds and feeds and then uh, uh, an advanced what they call advanced speeds and feeds much more aggressive so they've tested both of these um and, you know, there's some caveats, like if you're going to do the, the advanced, make sure your work holdings like up to the job. Right. So that's kind of nice. Like if, if you kind of had the basic and then uh, like maybe an aggressive, more aggressive that's been tested. Right. That, that would be helpful, too. And there's a big difference in there. It's like, uh, I mean, like I'm just looking at aluminum and it's by tool. So like if I look at the eighth inch, uh, they show they recommend 180 millimeters per minute. Uh, feed rate at 12,000 RPM. This is on the older machine that had the old 16,000 RPM spindle. Um, yeah, so 180 millimeters at 12,000 RPM, but the advance on the same tool is 1,500 millimeters per minute at 16.4, which was the, that was like maxed out on the spindle on the old machine. So uh, yeah, big difference in cutting time, right? And they cut, I think the, the everything else looks like this. Yeah, there's the same, same depth. None of the, like hobby guys seem to post anything or hobby manufacturers post anything for um, adaptive clearing, you know, high efficiency milling. So I'd like to see those 
tested numbers up there. Even Bant you know, Bantam doesn't have that either. This, this is probably all for, for sliding or contouring. I mean, most basic people, that's where they're going to start. Um, so it's probably not a huge loss if like we don't have adaptive numbers out there. Because um, if you're smart enough to use that, you've probably come up with your own recipes and you have a decent starting point. Um, but again, more information never hurt anyone. Yeah, I was curious. Is, so are the woodworkers, but you know, the Shepoko guys mostly seem to be woodworking uh, or working with wood, I should say. Not necessarily woodworkers, but uh, is that common to use adaptive? Uh, is that a common cam strategy for wood. I, I use it here on the Nomad and I love it when I do the enclosures, it's really fast, but I do get some tear out when I use both way. Like I kind of, I stick to climb only, get a little bit better surface finish. Wood is weird because of, of its, just the material properties. Um, sometimes you want to do conventional, sometimes you want to do climb. Um, I don't know. I personally, I just prefer adaptive um, just from a deflection standpoint, the the spindle load is is constant. It's even as I go into corners, like especially doing climb. Like I know that I'm not uh, deflecting or leaving extra stock to leave. So when I come back with a contour, it's a nice even tool pressure. Um, but really, it doesn't matter. And like a lot of the people who are doing woodworking stuff, like signs and plaques, like they're just using like carbide create. They're they're probably not even doing a finishing pass. So yeah, they're just doing a contour, right? Contouring toolpaths, yeah, and sliding, yeah, um, which seems to work with the with the, the trim router. It's fast enough to kind of get away with that in wood. Yeah, and I guess in that case, like running extra conservative would actually help because you're you're taking much smaller chip load, so you can actually hold that machine dead on a little easier. Yeah, yeah, I agree, uh, especially if you're going to follow up with the finishing pass. Uh, yes. You know, what's kind of weird, like you were saying, like I notice even as the, like I do a lot of round features, um, for the, cause the spindle case was round. Right. And I noticed like on the Paduke is it's, even if it's, as it's transitioning from kind of like cutting across the grain to along the grain, like there's a big difference in like kind of spindle load. Right? I, I could tell the spindle works a little harder cutting one way versus the other. This is all climb too, right? Just the direction, the orientation of the cutting path to the wood grain, right? Seems to yep. vary a lot. The fibers know. just tear out a lot easier in one one direction versus the other. Yeah, and aluminum, you know, it's, it's pretty consistent. Um, so that was kind of new to me. <laughs> it's like, I thought something was wrong at first and I realized uh, it depends on the, the orientation of the material, right? So um, yeah, what, what I know about wood could fit on poster stamps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's right. It's pretty forgiving. So I know you. Um, you know, I've got, I've got YouTube aspirations. What do you got going on for 2019 for your social media? Are you? Um, I guess you have really two channels to support now, right? You still have your Earth Three. I do, <laughs> yeah, and, and figuring out how to balance like the Carbide 3D channel and my channel is something that uh, I've discussed with the guys like George and and Rob, but like. In practice, it's a little different. So we previously discussed like the the more educational stuff will go on the Carbide 3D channel. The more experimental stuff will go on my channel. Um, but how do you? Where do you draw the line? And uh, if I if I do a random project like, like the aluminum star one, there there's T 
teachable points that might fall on the educational side that might go on the Carbide 3D channel, but there's a lot of like the, hey, let's use parallel toolpaths to achieve a certain aesthetic, which no one would care about from an educational standpoint. And so that's that's sort of why I've been angling the videos, like material guides, like, hey, here's how you cut linoleum, here's how you cut foam, uh, specifically to the Carbide 3D channel. And um, I've sort of been using my channel right now as sort of a, a behind the scenes, like, hey, this is these are the, the variables I played with to get my recipe for foam, um, which the foam video for Carbide 3D still has not gone out because I haven't quite exhausted all the things I want to test. Um, but for like for my channel, like I've come to some preliminary conclusions. I'm happy to share them. But when it comes time to put it on the Carbide 3D channel, I want to make sure I've run through like all the different parameters. Like I want to try different stepovers to see if that that stringy strand of foam that pulls out with the cutter could be eliminated at a certain step over um, or to try the the quote-unquote full Grimsmo foam cutting method of cutting the contour first and pocketing out roughing the inside after like you've already uh, cleaned up the, the outer wall so you don't have to worry about them um, so just just a couple more things I want to play around with before I I finally put a definitive guide on the carbide 3d channel um, just because I, I sort of feel a little deeper sense of responsibility. I don't want to put out wrong information or I don't want to put out incomplete information. Um, so that's that's sort of been a weird cadence, like the linoleum cutting video. I, I published on Carbide 3D, published on my channel, uh, had one guy comment like, oh, this looks familiar. And that's because I, I published the linoleum cutting guide at the same time as my like stamp making thing. So um, I don't know, figuring out how to how to stagger the the videos and come up with things that are unique and so they don't feel repetitive even though like there's probably going to be a surge of aluminum cutting videos on my channel and carbide 3d's channel um <clears throat> i don't know i, I gotta figure out how to how to really have a good equilibrium and balance between the two of them um but the the underlying aspiration is more content and uh, just more learning for me because a lot of these things, like, I have no problem approaching an aluminum machining job, but there are still aspects of machining aluminum, like surface finish, uh, like uh, using the adaptive for clearing, like pushing for maximum MRR, that I just, I haven't really done on the machine. Um, like, any hobby machinist, you give them enough time, they'll, they'll, they'll reach an end goal, um, but they might not do it in the optimal way. And so I'm trying to figure out the best way to do uh, all these different things. And uh, I don't know. It, it's I'm looking forward to the learning process um, and uh, just putting out a lot more content, even though my my editing bandwidth is still about one video a week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see, you know, the carbide... Uh, official stuff kind of stay towards actionable, usable uh, recipes or techniques, right? That's my vision for that is to sort of make it the like a, a repository of knowledge. Like if you're not sure how do you machine like polycarbonate or something, you just Google or YouTube search how to machine polycarbonate on the Nomad or on the Shapeoko, and you'd get the result to show up. Um, just to have that data out there in a searchable format, 
that people can go out and find, I, I, I think that would be useful. Um, it's like the Carbide Three D guys; they're not looking for like viral success in their channel. They just want like the information out there so that people can find it, can make use of it to help get some of the people off the backs of the support team. Um, so I, I just want to get good information out there in a concise format that people can use. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's basically more reference library than the video of the week, right? <laughs> so uh, it'll have you know long term permanence and uh, occasionally probably get updated, but um, if you learn something that works better, but uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's the way to go. And then you know do whatever you want on your on your uh, personal channel, including failures, right? Because I, I would never see necessarily posting, hey, this is what didn't work. <laughs> on no one, no one needs to see that on the. <laughs> Watch something violently deconstruct itself on a CNC. Yeah, that's not good PR. Carbide hadn't until you started over there. Hadn't really done much on their channel, right? They they they, they were posting the uh, customer spotlight stuff, but before that, there really wasn't a lot on there. It was kind of I don't want to say it was dead, but it was very infrequent updates. So I need to I need to kind of put that one back into my rotation. Keep an eye on it because you've probably posted stuff there I haven't seen yet. Um, only like two or three videos so far um i'm still like this this holiday break was a way for me to sort of reorganize my queue and figure out like all right how many more shots do i need what else do i need uh footage of um i've got like two or three videos like in the queue ready to go as soon as i get that extra footage so um not not as much activity as i'd like these past couple weeks but it will hopefully get some more content up soon so like kind of longer term, are you, uh, are you getting involved in the production side at all or, or interested or, I mean, are you basically learning how to use the bigger machines they have there? Rob has told me that he wouldn't mind if I wanted to try my hand at programming the, uh, for the Haas or the brother. Um, I haven't had much of an opportunity yet just cause all these small things like the foam, like the linoleum, like the aluminum. I just keep popping up, but at some point, I I would like to uh, to take a crack at it. Um, some of the the suggestions for uh, changing up some of the parts they've uh, taken into account. Um, so we'll we'll see. Um, like the uh, I don't know if it's it's out yet. I got to check the product page, but I've been yelling at them to make the uh, the Nomad Vice compatible with the Shapeoko table. So. It's a, such a small change, um, so just being there, being able to harass them to to maybe edit the model and and repost the G code. Um, well, hopefully, we'll see more of these changes trickling through in uh, twenty nineteen. Can the existing vice can the whole pattern be drilled into the base to make it work on uh, the shape? Okay, you. Can, it's easier to just turn one of the holes into a slot. Ah, yeah. Um, because I think uh, it overlaps the, a little bit. Yeah, the Nomad hole pattern I think is what like sixty millimeters or something. Um, the shape oak was fifty, and like two inches or three inches, like somewhere. It it's it's so close to being able to work on the shape oak already. Yeah, they just need to elongate one of the holes. Yeah, I I'd, I'd sacrifice my anodizing for for that. Uh... That flexibility to use I, it in both machines. I've already done it, and I just I took a red sharpie marker and just covered up the the parts that had been cut. 
Yeah, it's surprising how how little I use that vice now. I used it quite a bit when I first got my my Nomad. Um, it's a good little vice, especially if you make the mods that uh, JPL Richard recommended, uh, which I have yet to do. Just again because I'm not using it now, I tend to I tend to go make custom fixtures and use that for work holding or double sided tape. Yeah, I just don't do a lot of vice work. Uh, I do on the pocket NC. So I'm actually one of the things I don't know if I mentioned on the last podcast, but um, I'm looking at. Uh, those the pocket and C vices are really the only vices small enough to fit on the Bantam Tools machine too. So uh, I never, I've always kind of been wanting a, a vice solution there, small one. But uh, there's so little Z travel; it's like one inch or a little bit over one inch. Um, there's really just no room for a vice. But I tested them out. Uh, can actually get two vices in there pretty easily without giving up too much Z. So I might drill my my uh, bed for pocket and see vice mounts on there or, you know, be able to put them on the bed on the other mill. That would be adorable. Yeah. Well, it's functional too, right? Cause that's, it, it gives me super quick setup time for, for prototyping like plate. Yeah. Usually I tape, I tape plate down there with double sided tape, but I always get like, usually if I'm on the other mill, I'm trying to do some really precise work and there's enough variability. And even in the permacell tape, that the Z and I, I can't probe because um, a lot of times it's like it's a non-conductive material like Delrin, and uh, oh yeah, <laughs> it's it's conductivity based. Yeah, exactly. So um, and they have a, actually they have a solution now on the new machine that works with non-conductive material, uh, but it's got a height limitation. It's really for like PCB. You know, a vice would be like maybe a little more accurate, uh, repeatable than the tape. So I'm gonna I'll, I'll be playing around with that when I get a little bit of time getting a, the small vices mount there because I have the, I have the extra vices now for the uh, tombstone that I can kind of move back and forth between that and this machine. I'm still waiting to see that uh, like come into, come into play in some sort of project or process. I basically set the tombstones aside when I had this uh, other, pretty much I spent like uh, three, three machining weeks, <laughs> three weeks of available machining time spread across probably like six weeks. Uh, kind of working on this, the, the the gear parts and some another project that I had uh, for different clients. So uh, finally getting some time to use the pocket and see for kind of work holding development, kind of pick up where I left off on the tombstone. But yeah, that machine's been pretty busy the last few weeks. I can't show some of it, um, but I'm glad I was able to show the, at least the, the gear stuff and the aluminum, and what they call it, gear carrier. Yeah, and even that small amount was enough to keep you in the lead for uh, Instagram followers. <laughs> yeah, so, I don't know what's going on with that. Uh, yeah, it's been kind of... I guess a lot of bored people over Christmas, right, kind of came on Instagram. I think so, because I've also seen a huge surge in followers uh, for no apparent reason. But I guess the algorithm is just really kind this time of year. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I'm, Welcome to all the new, new my new followers. Thank you for... Uh, I don't know if they'll find their way to the podcast, uh, probably eventually. But uh, yeah, it's it's been good. Um, I, I you know like every time that number goes up, I start getting uh, kind of more or better feedback or higher volume feedback, right, in my posts, um, good tips and stuff. So I love. You know, there's definitely a payback both ways or both directions on uh, getting a good follower base because they're usually a wealth of ideas on something you you post and they'll say, hey, try this, and I do, and it works. So. <laughs> 
thank you. I, I feel like we have the opposite result because the more people I get, the more people I have asking me questions about the Shape Oko or the Nomad. <laughs> well, I get that too, and uh, which is good and bad, right? Depending on, um, I, like I said, I've been lucky. Um, everyone's kind of asked for help. It's been, uh, you know, done it right, right? Patient about it, not not demanding, and, and uh, willing to kind of wait if I can't get back to them right away. So never had a bad experience with that yet. All right. Well, we probably should wrap it up. Um, unless you got, you got anything else you want to cover? Not, not really. What do you have? Uh, what's, what's your, your next project after your, uh, job? Top priority is still finishing the, uh, Shehepoko enclosure. Cause I, I want to get that sign, uh, gate sign done for my sister. Um, that's going to be a big, big piece of aluminum machining. So I got to keep that mess contained. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, that's probably in the next two weeks. Uh, and if I comes down to like, if worse comes worse and I can't get the plexiglass, I mean, the acrylic and not acrylic, uh, polycarbonate, like set up in the window, I'm just going to put the, the opaque material in the window and stick a camera inside. So I can see what's going on because <laughs> I'm going to get this done one way or another. Um, and that's about, yeah, I have some other, uh, speeds and feeds tests I want to do on the shape of go. Cause like I've only run two tools on in aluminum on that machine so far, broke one of them and, and had really good success with the other one with that task. So uh, um, I've got a bunch of large, day, or much you know, larger Datron single flutes, six millimeter up to eight millimeter that I want to try. Marvin gave me this interesting Datron pace mill that I've been dying to run. Um, they're really only usable on the shape echo here. Shanks are too big and cutters are too big for anything else. So um, can't wait to get that up and running. So that's probably the main thing I'll be focused on this week. I, don't know if I have any of oh, the pinion. I'll probably start on that too. And uh, continue with the surface finish tests and see kind of if I can optimize that on the, I, I think I'm good on P, PNC. I think I got to optimize to my satisfaction. I'll keep working on the other mill. because I know it can do better than what I got today. Uh, so there's something still, still yet to be adjusted to get what I, what I got on the pocket and see, I think. How about you? Next project on the agenda that's not just like uh, filling in for like missing information or knowledge about previous project is probably my uh, GoPro macro adapter. So I've had this idea of sticking a GoPro on the bed of the Nomad um, just to capture footage from a uh, different um, what's what's the word I'm looking for Co coordinate system frame of reference. Um, just because like all all the other machinists, they've got big machines. They stick GoPros on them, and you can follow along the, with the spindle or on the the table. Um, but just watching the Nomad machine from an outside perspective is just like watching the x-axis move and the the table move, and it it's it's not good for time lapse because everything accelerates, and just the part and the spindle both become a blur. Um, so just from a as I try and step up my video game. Um, trying out different camera angles and perspectives is is pretty high on my priority list. But the problem with the GoPro is that anything closer than about 10 inches is blurry. So it's a it's farsighted. It's got like uh, its focus range is optimized for things that are far away. And so I need to be able to put a macro adapter in front of the lens. Now they sell these for the GoPro. The problem is like it's a pretty small market because who wants to use a GoPro to look at really tiny things? Um, so they charge like 30, 40 bucks for just a small piece of glass. And so I was like, I think I can do better. I've already got some, some macro adapters. 
I just need some way to hold these adapters in front of the GoPro. Um, so my next project is uh, coming up with something, uh, just a, a plate that I can glue to the front face of the GoPro, include a, a little raised collar with threads on it that I can thread the uh, macro adapter onto. But I'm kind of blind firing this, like I don't know what the, the thread specs are because it's a 52 millimeter diameter thread, but the pitch is uh, 0.75 millimeters, um, which is not a normal thread you'd find anywhere else. Like the smallest pitch that you'll find in Fusion is uh, 1.5 that they have pre-programmed. So it's a pretty unique thread. I'm, I'm just going to try, just figure out a pitch diameter offset that sounds good and a good starting diameter for the uh, main bore, and we'll just... I'm I'm going to be winging it pretty much. Okay, I think... Um, is this like for an SLR adapter? Is that what your SLR yeah. class? Yeah, so I think one of the things to, to check out um, on the specs is I think a lot of those are multi-start threads, so there's more than... Like, normally I, I do single-start, which is just one thread, right? But um, with thread milling, there, I think there's, like, probably more than one thread running... Um, I am looking at the adapter right now. I don't see a second to start. Okay. Well then, yeah, this should be easy. Yeah. And, and the nice thing about thread milling, it doesn't care as long as it's, you know, 60 degree, uh, tooth profile, which it probably is. You can make any pitch you want, assuming you're, you know, within the range of the thread mill that you have. Yeah. We'll see. You'll, you'll see it on Instagram if it's a success or if it's a failure. Okay. Well, I think we should probably wrap it up. Um, so we're just for the, the listeners, we're back on our probably every two week schedule for 2019. There'll be some probably either late episodes or skipped weeks because I think you've got a lot of travel planned for this year. Uh, not until February. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, I'll be doing a little bit too. So um, we'll, you know, we'll just, we'll flex around that, but uh, should have a pretty good year, pretty good set of guests set up for 2019. I'm, I'm excited about it uh, for DFX and hopefully you are too. This is, what is this, episode uh, 14. 14, yeah. And I saw uh, Business and Machine just had their 100th episode, which is awesome. So uh, congrats, Johns. Someday we'll get there. In due time. Twice as slow as they are. They started before us and they do weeklies. <laughs> I don't think, I, I, I got to hand it to those guys. That's a, that's a crazy pace. Um, just doing two weeks at a time is pretty, pretty challenging for me. Uh, and I don't have the all the stuff going on that those guys do. So pretty amazing that they they're able to knock that out consistently with all they got going on in their shops. Thanks. Anyway, so I'll say good night. Uh, have a good week and a good new year. Thank you very much. It's been a great chat with you again and uh, look forward to many more episodes in 2019. Yeah, me too. Thanks Winston. Good night. Good night.